Luke 18. More than any other physical disability, the Bible makes mention of blindness the most. Now, just because something is mentioned numerically more times than something else doesn't automatically mean it's of chief importance. We recognize that. But isn't there something about the eyes of a person that seems just centrally important to their very personhood, we might say? A person's eyes can be said to be wicked, hopeless, empty, distrustful, hypocritical, evil, and so on and so forth. On the flip side, someone's eyes could be said to be soft or warm, or caring, or gentle, or patient, loving, peaceful, and the like. I'm reading a book right now to our kids in which the primary villain, time and again, is identified by their black, empty eyes. In a way, all the works of the flesh can be descriptions of the eyes. And on the flip side, all the fruits of the Spirit can be described as being visible through the gateway of a person's eyes. And Jesus tells us as much, doesn't He, in the Sermon on the Mount, where He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body is healthy and full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy or bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. It's not coincidental that Satan's appeal to Eve in the garden was an insidious lie that what? Her eyes. Her eyes would be opened, right? Tempting her with that spiritual autonomy, carrying a godlike status, at least the allure of it. Time and again, the prophets rebuke Israel for their spiritual blindness and for their hardness of heart to obey the words of God. Jesus rebukes Israel's religious leaders for being blind guides who strain out gnats and swallow camels in terms of their out-of-whack moral compass. Throughout the Scripture and in our text today, physical blindness serves as a ready illustration for the importance of one's spiritual vision, both of which are healed. Jesus' compassion toward the blind beggar along the Jericho Road. This morning we will encounter this unlikely character of a blind beggar whose faith has and continues to instruct millions of God's people. I want to ask you two questions that you'd consider now and again a few moments from now. And they're really two sides of the same coin, pair realities said in different ways. But consider these two realities. First, what am I beholding? Ask that of yourself. In life, what are you most captured by? What just takes you in? The eyes of your heart, as the Apostle Paul puts it, are open to something or someone who animates you, who steers and propels your life onward? Is your vision of the life you deeply want shaped by the spiritual eye doctors of our age, we might say it? 
those who would coach you and what spiritual lenses you need to wear in order to measure up and have, your, have a significant life. What is it that your life, that your heart is, is beholding? And secondly, what is it that is blinding you? What is blinding me? What are those things that may be spiritually blinding you from beholding, truly beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? For some, career success, material gain, net worth, a sense of having accomplished all your dreams in this life. For others, it's distractions, such as an endless stream of news and sports, YouTube videos, addictive games, and so on and so forth. For others, it's remaining blind to your own heart's needs while obsessing over meeting everyone else's needs only to neglect your own spiritual life. Perhaps these things are receiving such heightened attention that at the end result is a visually impaired Christian whose spiritual eye exam results keep getting worse and worse and worse, something I know very well since my earlier days. If you could see the size of the glasses I normally wear when I'm not wearing contact lenses, you'd understand. But what are you beholding? What is it that is blinding you today? Keep these questions before you as now we fix our eyes on Jesus of Nazareth, who alone can remove our spiritual cataracts. So the glorious vision of the Father can no longer be obscured by idolatry, which veils the true, lasting, satisfying beauty that is knowing and loving God. So let us pray before we dive into this passage before us in Luke 18. Our Father, we have, we have prayed as we have sung already many, many times that you would be Lord of our lives, that you are who you say you are in the Scriptures, and yet we so often live as if you are not those things. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened this morning, whether for salvation or sanctification. Regardless, we need transformation. Grant this through the power of your Spirit. In Christ we pray. Amen. Well, for nearly 10 chapters, roughly Luke 9 through Luke 18, Luke, the author here, has been detailing this travel narrative of Jesus and His disciples as Jesus' earthly life and ministry is just unveiled little by little through various interactions with sinners and religious leaders and unlikely converts. And while Matthew and Mark choose to emphasize Jesus' exalted nature, Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity, particularly how He displays compassion towards society's castaways, such as Samaritans and Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners, widows, children, lepers, the poor and the sick, these sorts of characters. You'd have to be completely asleep not to conclude whatever this kingdom of heaven is all about 
boy, it looks different than I would naturally think if I'm a first century observer and listener of Christ's ministry. This is not the normal path that someone builds a kingdom by. In fact, the preceding story of Jesus' interaction with the rich ruler underscores this reality. Wealthy, morally upright folk, law-abiding citizens, they do not get a fast track to the kingdom of God. Rather, these folks can oftentimes have the most difficult time inheriting the kingdom, as earthly comforts can so easily dull the pain of a sinful conscience and breed a Christless self-sufficiency. Nevertheless, these unsuspecting characters throughout Luke's gospel, for whom Jesus extends mercy and forgiveness, depict the upside-down, otherworldly nature of God's kingdom. The blind beggar on the Jericho road is one such character. Jesus has just pulled His disciples to the side of the road for a quick team meeting, as it were. This little episode in verses 31 to 34 in Luke 18, in which He tells them that the next leg of the journey is about to be very, very difficult. And He's pretty clear with them. He tells them that He will soon be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed, so that the words of the prophets will be justified and verified and fulfilled. But Jesus tells them He will rise again on the third day. And what does Luke say? They got most of it. They got a pretty decent grade. Is that what he says? Ah, they got a little more wrong than they got right. No, they missed it all. They were like, this isn't, this is not clicking, Jesus. I don't know what you're trying to tell us. And we, we read and know the rest of the story and we judge in our pride that how much smarter we would have been standing there on the side of the road, but you know, we would have been just as dense, Right? This is what immediately precedes now this story with the beggar. And as the journey moves ever closer to Jerusalem, this final leg of the trip, Jesus and His disciples approach Jericho, located about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And seated along the road is a blind man, presumably the same individual as the Gospel of Mark names as Bartimaeus. In the following sequence of events that we'll read as we work through the story here unfolds in three brief segments. We first see in verses 35 through 39 the unrelenting cries of this beggar, which then shows us the uncommon compassion of Christ, not uncommon describing His compassion but the expectations among others. And then lastly, leading to an unrestrained praise. Unrelenting cries, verses 35 through 39, following on the heels of the account describing the spiritual blindness, as it were, of the disciples, who despite Jesus' best attempts to explain what is going to unfold, they cannot perceive it. The text now illustrates in living colors, what it means to truly see. 
We see the beggar's location in verse 35. And as he drew near to Jericho, the blind man was sitting by the road begging. This is where he was. Blindness in the first century Palestinian world, along with many other ailments and infirmities, usually meant a life of begging, begging for the compassion and the generosity of those who would pass by. So you'd want to find the crossroads of society and place yourselves in the midst of it, hoping that the odds would be better in your favor than some obscure location. There were not the social services and mercy ministries and charitable organizations providing aid like we're very familiar with today. There was only the hope of situating yourself in a popular location where those passing by might generously provide enough pennies for you to purchase your next meal, something to that level. This beggar seeks compassion from the entourage traveling toward Jerusalem, of which Jesus is a part. Jesus and his disciples are likely the local attraction, creating no small stir. And this is what intrigues the blind man, who then inquires others about what in the world is going on. So we see his inquiry and then the crowd's response in the next two verses, 36 through 37, we read, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. We are not told how much the beggar knows of Jesus, but he knows enough to attribute Jesus of Nazareth as not being simply Jesus from the town of Nazareth, but this is Jesus, the son of David, as we'll see. An exalted title that recognizes Jesus' messianic nature. News of Jesus had no doubt spread far and wide. So sitting in the crossroads of society may have brought the advantage of picking up the local rumors and stories as quickly as anybody in the day. And the beggar may have thought, should I ever be fortunate enough to meet this Jesus? You bet your bottom dollar I'm going to do everything I can to get to him. He may have planned this, wondering with some expectation if he would pass by his road. Well, even though the crowd dignifies the beggar with an answer to his question, They don't want him involved in any way. We see the beggar's cries and then the crowd's opposition in verses 38 and 39. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more. He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Luke portrays the crowd here as a consistent deterrent to the beggar's relentless cries for mercy. The social pecking order of who could get to Jesus left this notorious beggar at the end of the line, for sure. In the crowd's eyes, he was just a bother, a nuisance reminding everyone of the world under the curse, a frustrating impediment and an unwanted disruptor. Just like the children earlier in chapter 18, who were viewed as an annoying disturbance to Jesus' ministry, the beggar is dismissed sharply 
by the VIP members of this crowd. Twice, Luke notes the beggar's request that Jesus have mercy on him, calls out. The cries presumably do not end, indicate a perpetual calling out. For there is no obstacle big enough to keep this determined beggar from Jesus hearing him. We all love motivational stories of determined individuals, don't we? It's sort of woven into our, our spirit as, as humans probably, and Americans in particular. I can remember one such story of the South African Olympic sprinter Oscar Pistorius as representing one of these stories. And although his personal life has quickly turned into a royal mess, and I do mean a, a dumpster fire, just a, sh- a few short years after his dynamic 2012 Olympic sprinting debut, in which the whole world just was trying to put themselves together, that a double-leg amputee such as this individual was actually running with the world's best in the Olympics. It was stunning. And sadly, setting his being convicted of murdering his girlfriend aside for just a moment, (laughs) what he did was phenomenal. We were pulling for him. He won nothing at the Olympics. And yet, for what he was up against, was not the world pulling for him? Similarly, this beggar is on a determined mission to seek Jesus, and he will not be stopped. If crowds verbally rebuked you as we consider his opposition, I wonder, would you quit? Young people, children, teens, listen up for just a moment. The crowds in our day and age can seem increasingly powerful and punishing. To stand with Christ is to know the servant is not greater than the master and will likely share in his reproach. When seeking Jesus means enduring ridicule, for walking away when someone whips out a phone to show you something inappropriate or wicked, and you walk away, know that getting to Jesus is worth it. When seeking Jesus means no longer being accepted by the same group of friends, know that getting to Jesus is always worth it. When someone seeks to malign or offer hateful speech, against you, even though it may not represent the spirit or the tone or the attitude of your heart, that your lack of celebrating what God calls evil is is wrong. Getting to Jesus is always worth it. Retreat to Him. Every one of us will feel opposition in different ways, but let us remember we wrestle not against flesh and blood, ultimately. So we need not spew filth in return, but rather keep the prize before you. Getting to Jesus, getting to the Son of David who shows mercy to all who call out in faith. This is worth it all. And the beggar demonstrates this with his actions by faith. In verses 40 through 42, now we see the beggar receive an uncommon display of compassion. 
to someone in his condition. Verse 40 records Jesus' reaction to the commotion being raised by the blind beggar. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. So although Jesus has already set his face, he has determined to move towards Jerusalem on this final critical step before he completes the Father's will, facing the coming suffering, the pain of crucifixion, he is not hurried. He stops. He commands the beggar to come. The beggar knows he can't fix himself. He no doubt has, tr- has had that thought. If only I could do something to repair my vision. He knows it's not in himself. His faith is unwavering that Jesus can simply say the word and he'll be healed. Like the stories he likely has heard. In our day and age, it's, it's actually pretty common to see celebrities and professional athletes and the like to take time to go to a local hospital or a local charitable organization and to, with the camera crew ready, of course, um, to, to make, a, give attention to things like that. And I would say this is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's hugely encouraging to those with all sorts of maladies and, and problems and a, a vestige of God's common grace, I think. And yet... Such a thing would not have been common in Jesus' day. This would not have been Jesus' step to winning the NFL's Walter Payton Man of the Year Award or something like that. Not at all. Very uncommon. Jesus' compassion arrests everyone's attention. Both Moses and King David mention limitations for the blind individual Entering God's holy presence in the tabernacle and the temple. Someone in this beggar's condition would have never made it near to God's most holy presence. But here, sacred space comes to him. Disabled, dirty, penniless, and helpless as this beggar was. Jesus calls him and warmly receives him. We read in... Jesus asking the beggar what he wants in verses 40 and 41. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. So does this blind beggar simply want another handout? Perhaps a really, really generous one from a known miracle worker? Or is he sincere? Well, Jesus' question helps reveal this. Blindness, like leprosy, would not have been something anyone thought could be healed. But the beggar asks in faith, knowing Jesus is no above-average prophet. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. In verse 42, we read, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. This is Jesus' final miracle before entering Jerusalem. And he's done exactly what he said he would do when he walked into the synagogue in Nazareth and read from that Isaiah scroll. 
that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Throughout his gospel, Luke wants us to see that the deepest, most damning kind of blindness belongs to those who claim they see quite well, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, their tribe. While true spiritual vision is bound up in unreserved trust in Jesus for everything. Jesus tells the beggar, his faith has saved him. Should we congratulate the beggar on his amazing effort to showcase his persistent grit and determination? Since after all, his faith did the saving, right? Isn't that what the text says? This would be, I think, a complete misrepresentation of the situation, 100%. Professor Thomas Schreiner writes on the meaning of faith in the New Testament. He adds a helpful word. Faith is fundamentally, as we put all the appearances together and collectively look at how the New Testament treats this idea, it is fundamentally receptive, he says. Faith conveys trust in what God has done for us in Christ. Time and again, the New Testament contrasts doing and believing between achieving and receiving, between acting and resting. So what distinguishes the beggar as a positive model of saving faith is not his self-confidence, but his confidence in Jesus. With a jeering crowd telling him to just get lost, he knows that the son of David before him is his only hope. So for the beggar to have grounds for boasting due to his extraordinary act of coming to Jesus would just upend the very point Luke wants us to grasp. However, saving faith is always hardwired to transform living, isn't it? And this is exactly what we see evidenced at the tail end of this story in verse 31, or verse 43. We see an un restrained praise. Healing leads to following, which leads to glorifying. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The blind beggar's sight was immediately restored by Christ, but he did not run off like nine of the ten lepers ecstatic that a new life was before him and just just going through all the list of things he couldn't wait to do and I'm going to try this out and I can't I've always wanted to do this and go here and see this and this no no just the opposite the text says he followed Jesus giving glory to God he was not instructed to follow Jesus at least not that we know here but it likely was all he wanted to do. The beggar's healing was not merely physical. It was a holistic work of spiritual regeneration. His healing led to following, and his following led to glorifying. 
of the Father. But there was a certain contagious nature to his praise. The critical mass of people within this very same crowd that derided the beggar just moments ago now see, truly see with their own eyes the stunning compassion of Jesus to open blind eyes. They have heard the beggar's minor key cries for mercy transposed immediately into a major key cry of praise. And they themselves must join the song. For Jesus is the Lord, who as Psalm 146 states, gives sight to the blind and lifts up those who are bowed down. Jesus is the Lord, as Psalm 113 states, raises the beggar from the ash heap and makes him to sit among princes. Jesus is the Lord, who as Moses learns in Exodus 4, makes a person mute, deaf, seeing, or blind. As we sung this morning, Jesus is the author of creation, the Lord of every man, and His cry of love rings out across the land. As we consider this this story together, have you witnessed the power of God in the lives of others? As if you are part of this onlooking crowd, have you joined the song? Perhaps you've received a heritage of family members or or friends who love Jesus and trust Him with genuine saving faith, but you remain remain a, a crowd member, so to speak, hanging around for the show, but still spiritually blind yourself. Has the stunning compassion of Jesus and His faithfulness, His faithful pursuing love, has it gripped you? And if his compassion flows to unlikely characters like this beggar, whose life amounts to just about nothing in the world's estimation, at least in this present context, do you really think he's unaware of you? No. Having the eyes of our hearts open requires first that we understand the ageless battle that rages. We must believe That as the Apostle Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing something, from seeing the most grand reality in all the universe, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is a battle, friends, to keep you from seeing the beauty, the all-satisfying splendor of Christ. This fundamental reality is truly essential. If you know yourself to be in this category, blinded by sin, veiled to faith, personal trust in the gospel, cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy. Jesus hears and He will save. The miracle took place just days before Jesus would enter Jerusalem for the purpose of giving His life as a ransom for sinners. He would be falsely accused, mistreated, betrayed, forsaken, and crucified, all to pay for sin. 
The Father would raise him from the dead where he proclaimed victory to over 500 witnesses and ascended to glory where he now sits on heaven's throne. Oh, to see and to believe the splendor of that message. Come to him. When we return back to the two questions posed earlier, what are you beholding? What is blinding you? To behold something is to spend time, somewhat even subconsciously, mulling over the beauty and the worth of something, like a piece of art or a natural wonder. It may not be a physical object per se, but it's your heart's projection of the world as you sure would like it. To behold is to, is to worship. And what we worship always fashions us into its likeness, either for our ruin or for glory. So we can rightly say, you are becoming what you are beholding, brothers and sisters. You are being shaped by that which has captured your gaze. What treasure occupies your imagination this morning? What version of the good life are you running toward? Beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ fashions us into His likeness, which aligns perfectly with our created purpose to image God's likeness in the earth so all might see Him through us. But sadly, for many of us, even after coming to faith in Christ, we are still molded and shaped heavily by these eye doctors of our age, the vision experts of this world who would tell us we cannot see well unless we see as they instruct us. The American dream is something we love to celebrate since our country's freedom and the opportunity that affords millions to provide for themselves and those who come after them is an unbelievable, unspeakable blessing in so many ways. Such a noble dream however, has swelled and does swell into unchecked greed many times and demands of comfort if we are not careful. This is very similar to what Jesus targeted in the heart of the rich young ruler who just loved comfort of this life beyond following Jesus and what that could mean. Are you beholding the good life as one of high wages, low stress, tons of time off, and a well-financed slew of hobbies and toys that can impress and outnumber your neighbor? Has that vision captured you? And don't think for a moment because you haven't achieved it, it hasn't captured you. Is the wanting of that captured the imagination as the gold standard of this life? Perhaps great wealth doesn't take you in as much as great honor before the eyes of others. Are you beholding a life in which you are esteemed for your generosity or charity in a particular field? Perhaps to a degree that stands out more than anyone else. Perhaps your work ethic is extraordinary, but you've come to view your service, even ministry and service within Christ's church as a platform to showcase your glory. Perhaps you're a mom 
who feels the pressure to conform to our world's vision that you should have it all. You should be awesome at everything. You should sacrifice nothing for your personal life to achieve that. You should be as in shape as you ever have been, as successful in a career as you possibly can be, all while while overseeing a home with a happy husband, perfectly obedient children who play every instrument at a prodigy level, have budding athletic careers, and make straight A's. Not too high of a standard, right? The rat race, that is modern motherhood, can be brutal if the vision is not cast by Christ and His kingdom priorities. We should continue, we could continue down that road, teasing out everyone's phase of life. And I'd encourage you to to personalize that and have that conversation, whether within your own mind or with others. We could go down the line of singles and, and young adults and retirees and what is the good life as it is projected upon us in our present day. The necessary question we must ask ourselves is what great goal have the eyes of our heart fixed themselves upon? And does that great goal satisfy us like Christ? We must pursue the creation mandate, yes, of working and keeping God's world until Christ returns, of being fruitful and multiplying, subduing creation as the Lord expects. All this is understood. But Jesus calls us to follow Him, to lose our lives that we may find Him, to give generously in ways that do not promote ourselves, and to seek first God's kingdom, knowing that everything we could ever really want that satisfies a person will be given us should we need it when we rightly put the kingdom of God in its correct place. And behold that as all glorious. If your vision has been transfixed with this tunnel vision of our world that says you must live your best life now, you will soon find following Christ pretty dull and boring. What are you beholding with the eyes of your hearts, brothers and sisters. The question is utterly useless if it's not answered honestly. But regardless, you are becoming what you are beholding. The second question is very closely related and equally important. But what is it that is blinding you? If Jesus Christ truly is the radiance of the Father's glory, the very imprint of His nature, the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy of all worship, the King of kings and Lord of lords, what is blinding you, me, from knowing and loving and beholding His splendor? Has sin, guilt, shame blinded you from tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Ego, pride, selfish ambition, have they toppled your exalted opinion of the son of David? Have the idols of this world grown sweeter and sweeter to your taste, such that even when others try to warn you that they sure appear to have a grip upon your heart, you react, explain them away, get angry or retreat? We see our Savior perhaps most clearly when we observe His grace within the assembly of His people. In His Word, we hear His voice. And in His body, 
we sense His presence among us and see His transforming grace at work within us. Each and every time the church unites, we have the opportunity to see our Lord more clearly. One of the blessings of being made a member of Christ's family is helping one another keep beholding our Savior, keeping our eyes fixed on the prize, fixed on the Lord. Even an exhortation or rebuke from time to time, as the case may necessitate, we cannot get prickly or upset with one another. If the goal is, yes, imperfectly, for we are human, but to help one another fix our eyes on the celestial city, as we think of Pilgrim and his treacherous, difficult journey onward. The Lord has so wisely designed the church so that we help one another recognize cataracts, blind spots, tunnel vision, eye problems, vision issues in one another's lives. And this is a good thing. So Christ might be seen as all-glorious. The familiar story is often told of 19th century American hymn writer Francis Jane Crosby, who became blind at just six weeks of age due to receiving the wrong medication for an eye infection. This child, this blind child, would grow up to write nearly 9,000 hymns over the course of her life. And on one day, a well-meaning Christian minister told Miss Crosby, I think it is a great pity that the master, when he showered so many gifts upon you, did not give you sight. Mrs. Crosby replied, do you know that if at birth I was able to make one petition to my creator, that it would have been to be born blind? Surprised, the minister said, why? She replied, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. What I love about Crosby's story here is it tells us what could have happened should Jesus have denied the blind man's request. Perhaps saying, not in this life, brother, not yet, but in the life to come. It'll be worth it all. And in fact, I still want you to follow me. He would have been just as good, just as faithful. We don't follow Jesus because he does stuff for us. Like we can control him. No. In this circumstance with the beggar, he healed him, driving home the power of this son of David. For Miss Crosby, it's just the opposite but he was just as good. Brothers and sisters, like the blind beggar, run in faith to the Savior, even if for the first time today. And even in the face of great opposition, whatever that may look like, follow him all your days and live to bring others into the joy of unrestrained praise. Let's pray. Father, we ask to see. We want to see. We cannot wait till these refashioned, remade eyes 
and the bodies that we will have for all eternity will gaze upon the one who has lived and died and rose again for our sins. We want to see you now, but we know that we see you in countless ways. We hear your voice in the pages of Scripture. We see you at work in real time and space as you walked this very earth and healed men like this blind beggar. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would behold the beauty of Jesus, that we would run to Him. We would find shelter and refuge in Him. We would know that there is no greater joy than loving and knowing the Son of David. We ask that you would accomplish your work. Open blind eyes this day to the glory of Christ. May in a brand new, fresh way, the Lord's worth, the Lord's value, just outshine all these earthly things that are meant to be just mere good gifts from you, but have totalized and, and completely obscured, in many cases, our view of you. Draw us back kindly, patiently. May we see you more clearly for your glory alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen.